What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. following announcement has been paid for by the new world order come on vince come on down yeah! it'll be fun yeah! you can do it i know you can <laughs> this is no game this is reality yeah! but this time it's my reality come on down vince you know you want to <laughs> it'll be fun it'll be a great time you can do it. Come on, Vince. Step into the ring. Do what so many other people would love to do. Get your hands around my skinny little neck. You can do it if you've got the guts. Do you, Vince? Have you got the guts to really show up? I do. Do you? Just think of it. Just think how great you'll feel if you're able to step into the ring and break my jaw. Knock me out. Snap an arm or a leg, whatever you'd like, Vince. It's no big thing, but it takes guts. That's what it's going to take, Vince. Have you got the guts, Vince? We'll find out. We'll be waiting for you, Vinnie Mac, with open arms. The preceding announcement has been paid for by the new This world is order. the two-man power trip of wrestling, brought to you today and powered by our good friends at the Icons of Wrestling Convention. On Saturday, April 22nd, today's guest... Eric Bischoff will be joined alongside Sean Waltman, Scott Hall, and Kevin Nash for a one-of-a-kind NWO reunion in, of all places, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at the former ECW Arena, now known as the 2300 Arena. It is going to be one special day, and it can be only found at the Icons of Wrestling and Comic Book Convention 
in Philadelphia at the 2300 Arena. You can head over to our Facebook page or you can head over to the Facebook page of the Icons of Wrestling to find out more. But tickets are available right now for Eric Bischoff and Sean Waltman through the two-man power trip of wrestling. And you can get all the information on where to find our stuff in the two-man power trip of wrestling business a little bit later on in the show. But if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And like I said on today's episode... We are joined by the one and only Eric Bischoff, the architect of the NWO, the former WCW executive, the former general manager of Monday Night Raw, and now current podcast host of Bischoff on Wrestling. But there's so much to tackle here first, and let's get right into it, because John and I, being such huge NWO fans, being something that really dominated a good portion of our uh, teenage years the NWO really was the pinnacle of feeling cool as a wrestling fan. And I know that there's uh, a couple places in uh, Thompson Middle School there in Middletown, New Jersey, that have some NWO etchings up and down uh, walls and ladders and different things that uh, needed to have a little bit of NWO branding added to it just because that's what the NWO made you feel back then. They made you feel cool. You made you feel like you weren't even watching wrestling at the time, that it was some other kind of renegade show that had a lot of cool stuff going on, whether it was uh, turning on your partner or whether it was uh, rioting or uh, the, the trash getting thrown in the ring. The NWO was so cool, but Eric Bischoff, really the architect of the NWO, and everything that happened in WCW that still gets talked about today, whether it's the Monday Night Wars or whether it's giving away Monday Night Raw results, Eric Bischoff really was a cutthroat and just absolute uh, innovative mind in professional wrestling, and that is what professional wrestling needed at the time. They needed somebody who could come and think outside the box, and Eric Bischoff did that on so many levels. Now, as we get rolling into this, and I'm going to welcome in John here in a minute, unfortunately, I could not be on this interview. I was deathly, deathly ill, and um, I wish I could uh, have left in my tr- my attempt at an interaction with uh, Eric before we got on the air, before I tapped out, but uh, you'll hear him make a little nod to my absence, and uh, it, was very, uh, it was very brutal to miss this one, but John did a great job because this guy uh, might have a little bit of a problem when it comes to uh, the detail he goes into with Eric Bischoff's life, but it was really cool to hear him talk to Eric Bischoff in such an elaborate way. But John, before we get rolling here, just talk about the icons of wrestling convention a little bit more. Give us a little more of the information and then just tell us what we have to look forward to in this in-depth interview with Eric Bischoff. Yes, Chad, you wanted to know more about the event? Yes, the event, in quotes, is the Icons Collectors Fest, April 22nd, like you mentioned, in Philly at the arena. And boy, isn't an event when you get the NWO together for a reunion. You got Scott Hall, you got Kevin Nash, you got Sean Waltman, a.k.a. Six, and you got Eazy-E Eric Bischoff. What an event it will be in Philadelphia on April the 22nd. Mark it on your calendars. Make sure you're there to meet the two-man power trip along with the NWO. And this is, you know, 20 years in the making. Actually, it's over 20 years in the making now. 
and you get a big time reunion. And I know when I was a you know fan back in 1996, I was obsessed with the NWO. I loved the NWO. It was kind of my wheelhouse as a you know as a kid growing up and um, kind of you know going through high school pretending we were the NWO. So it's pretty awesome. 20 years later that I will be and obviously you too, Chad as well. I mean, we'll be hanging out with the NWO. And spending the day and making a little money with the NWO as well in true NWO fashion. So that is awesome. But besides that, let's just focus right now on Eazy-E himself, Eric Bischoff. It was surreal to me to be able to finally get the chance to talk to Eric. Somewhat of a white whale for this show. We you know, we were been trying to get him on for a little bit. Finally we were able to nail it down and got a lot of time out of him and it was just awesome to be able to sit there and kind of ask so many burning questions that I've wanted to ask to him you know since you know 1996 or even earlier than that when he took over WCW you know when he became the executive vice president so this was one of those things where it's a long time coming for me and I just loved it so surreal to me like I said it's just so many years of questions kind of built up and for me I usually do a one sheet and if you're familiar with that term it's you know basically some info about what we're going to talk about the interview it's kind of just a guideline to go through and some bullet points maybe and you're going to hit some things on the interview with eric and i mentioned to him in the interview this was the longest one sheet it was actually you know a three sheet or a four sheet quote unquote because so many different topics so many different questions so many different things that he did that i wanted to ask him about or so many things that he created or so many things that he was a part of and i feel like you know we only basically scratched the surface of what I you know wanted to talk to him about but this interview was an hour and 20 minutes plus can't ask for much more than that from the man who beat Vince McMahon the only man to ever beat Vince McMahon you know the god himself the icon the legend whatever you want to call him awesome to get Bischoff on for that amount of time and cover the ground that we covered and he made a great joke and I kind of hold it as a badge of honor now and I think it's great and he kind of says it jokingly but I loved it. It was a great uh, compliment. He said, man, we covered more ground on this uh, one interview than I have on my podcast. So I thought that was really funny of him kind of throw out there and really funny of him to say. But, you know, being a huge WCW fan like I was, I was more WCW and more NWO than I was WWF. Obviously, I watched both. We get into kind of the Monday Night Wars where a lot of fans were toggling and switching back and forth. To be honest, I used to tape one watch the other one all the way through not do too much toggling unless i get a call from one of my friends like oh you got to turn this on or oh you got to turn that on check that so i had basically every wcw monday nitro on tape and i still do because i converted them to dvd i have all of them on uh, dvd so i'm very familiar with wcw obviously it's uh, part of the wheelhouse that is my fandom but i just loved it i just loved everything they were doing and i said this once and i say it again WCW at their best was untouchable. When they were at their peak point of great booking and execution, nothing was better. Nothing WBF ever did was better. You know, no other league, in my view, was better. When they were on point and they were nailing it and they were, you know, the booking was just off the charts because the talent level was there. And once you mixed in that great booking, once they you know, were hitting home runs, those home runs, you know, lasted for quite a while. And WCW at their best was the best and hey that's just my point of view but it's not going to change and nothing's going to change my mind and a huge part of that is eric bischoff and being a big bischoff fan and being a big wcw fan is only part of it 
we do ask the hard questions. We do get into some of, uh, you know, some questionable decisions or even some questionable bookings or whether the NWO was an original idea or whether it was spawned from Japan and kind of the ridiculousness of that question answered as well because it's a little bit silly when you kind of think of it and you're really kind of going back and forth like, oh, he, he stole from here. Uh, I don't think he stole the idea at all. If you and especially listen to Eric's response to that, because I'm sure he's heard the question before. But it's such a dumb question. But I had to ask it in, in a way to try to you know get the right answer out of him and kind of learn more about the NWO than just what's on the surface and what we thought. So it's great asking those questions and getting deeper answers about the NWO. You know how it was created. You know what the thought process was, what he was doing in Japan, the relationship with New Japan Pro Wrestling at that point. All these awesome questions that were asked and delved into. Also, when you think about the NWO, and you really just, you know, just sit there and really focus in on it, change the wrestling business forever. It was the biggest thing ever to happen to the wrestling business, especially at that point when it was kind of down a bit. I mean, obviously now you look at the ratings, you're like, well, you know, it wasn't down that much. Well, you know, when you think about it, at that point, you know, you went through the golden era with Hogan, and then it kind of was dying down a bit, and, and wrestling kind of wasn't where it should have been or where it really was in the late 80s and early 90s. So, boom, the NWO comes along, Hall and Nash join, Hulk Hogan has his epic heel turn, and the wrestling business is forever changed. So you get the NWO, you get the you know the change in the business. So of course, then you get the Attitude Era. Where did the Attitude Era respond from? Hint, hint, knock, knock, not ECW. It was spawned out of WCW, and it was spawned out of what Eric Bischoff was doing with the NWO and his characters and his shades of gray and his, you know, basically having these guys have a little bit more to them than meets the eye. They're not good, they're not evil, but they're more of a shade of gray, but they also have this attitude about them where they're cool and you want to be them and you want to imitate them and you almost want to have a, a you know get a group of friends together and quote unquote take over. So the NWO changed the wrestling business forever and I'm and I'm sorry if I keep rambling on here, but it really, really did. And we talked to in depth with Bischoff about his his involvement in the in the NWO, members of the NWO, who was good, who was bad, who worked, who didn't. So many topics were covered. It was just awesome, awesome to be able to talk about Eric and that stuff with the NWO. Also, we're talking about some copycats. Yes, obviously the attitude ever spawned off of WCW and spawned off of what Eric Bischoff was doing. Vince McMahon versus Austin copy off the nwo yes sir think about it when you really really think about it it's the man versus the machine the nwo the guys versus the machine man versus the machine so i do think and, and eric we do talk about it in the interview he agrees with me austin mcmahon spawned off of the nwo heel vince spawned off of heel eric bischoff so many damn things dx was the biggest ripoff of the nwo ever and you could say oh well triple h and michaels were friends with um Paul and Nash, and that's kind of where it came from. It was an NWO ripoff, period. And obviously, you know, we do talk about Sean Waltman leaving the NWO to go to DX, and that solidified them because they got an ex-NWO member in the group. So anyway, I can go on and on forever, and I just think that this was one of my favorite interviews, if not my most favorite, and I am really, really, really looking forward to 422 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the Icons Collectors Fest. We'll be hanging out with Eric Bischoff, 
and Sean Waltman, also with Hall and Nash as well with the NWO reunion. So Chad, take it away as episode number 251 starts us off with a bang. So many great topics covered. It is absolutely hilarious to hear Eric Bischoff say that you guys basically covered more than what he's covered on his podcast, Bischoff on Wrestling, which you can download on iTunes. And please, if you can, tweet out to Eric Bischoff. Tell him that you heard him on the two-man power trip of wrestling. Tell him you enjoyed the interview. And maybe we'll have him back for a part two and dive into a few of the additional topics that we didn't get a chance to get into in today's episode. A very NWO-centric episode, but hey... If you didn't know, NWO is for life, and I couldn't have it any other way. And we really hope you enjoy this one, and please come out to the Icons of Wrestling on April 22nd. If you're in that Philadelphia area, if you're in the New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, even Virginia area, get on up to Philly. This is going to be quite the unique opportunity to get your picture taken with the NWO of the four of them, Hall, Nash, X-Pac, and Eric Bischoff, four of the original members of the NWO. And obviously, we know we're missing one of the big guys. In Hollywood, we will be thinking about you on 422. But please, get out there if you can. And there'll be some really cool opportunities to uh, have some very unique autographed items uh, that you can add to your collection that we'll have of the four guys. So please, get on up there to Philly if you can. And, John, before we get it on over to the interview, hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business, and let's hear from Easy e Eric Bischoff. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please visit our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. Subscribe to us on YouTube. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're on iTunes, check out the feed for some legendary episodes featuring the living legend himself, Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Ray Mysterio Jr., Jeffrey McDivitt, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, Mr. Wonderful Paul Ondorf, AJ Styles, and so many others. Also, while you're surfing the web, check out WrestlingInc.com. Yes, that is WrestlingInc.com. They are the number one wrestling news source out there, so please check them out. Also, while on the internet, go to ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, ProWrestlingTees.com is your superstore. If you are a super fan, and you can please check out our page while you're there, you can check out Tito Santana, Paul Orndorff, Coco Beware, Magnum TA, Buff Bagwell, and so, so many others. Follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017 as we hit the road and we come to a town near you. April 22nd, we hit Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the Icons Collectors Fest. Then, May 19th and May 20th, we hit the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Expo in Richmond, Virginia. Then, follow us to New Jersey as we hit Legends of the Ring in Monroe. So please follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017, because you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, the former WCW Executive Vice President... He is the man that beat Vince McMahon 84 consecutive weeks. He's the only man ever to topple Vince. He is the architect 
of the NWO. He is a legend in this business. He is Easy E. Eric Bischoff. Please enjoy. is an absolute legend in the wrestling business. He is a New York Times bestseller. He's the former boss of WCW. He was the executive vice president. He's the only man to ever beat Vince McMahon. He is the architect of the NWO, and he will be joining us on April 22nd in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is EZE himself, Eric Bischoff. Eric, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Great, man. It's it's good to be with you. And it sounds like today it's going to be the one-man power trip of wrestling, being you, <laughs> because your your partner's out with uh, what, what sounded like he was. It sounded when he said hello just for a moment you know, th- that he'd been gargling with broken glass all afternoon. <laughs> so uh, I feel bad about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I feel bad for him as well. But, hey, it's, it's better for me. I get some uh, more one-on-one time with the boss, Eze himself. Now, uh, you know, to get things started, I guess we'll first start on 422 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We are bringing the band back together. It's four original members of the NWO. It's Hall, Nash, Waltman, and, of course, yourself. What do you think about meeting the fans and bringing the band back together one more time in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? I think it'll be a blast. You know, I always uh, I, I enjoy running into uh, X-Pac. Uh, I've had him on my show um, a few times on my podcast, uh, same with, you know, Scott Hall, love running into Scott Hall. I see him a couple times a year and, and Kevin Nash as well. So we all stand, you know, we don't talk every day, uh, for sure. In fact, I don't talk to anybody every day anymore, but you know, we stay in touch and, and stay connected and just, it's a real good vibe, a real good energy. And we enjoy each other's company and kind of reliving, you know, some of the, some of the highlights of, of that stage of our career. It's amazing when you think back to the NWO. I mean, that was my, you know, my wheelhouse, if you will, as a wrestling fan. I grew up, was obsessed with the NWO. Us as fans, we used to always pretend this guy is this member of the NWO or that member of the NWO. It must have been crazy kind of living it because you guys not only changed the face of WCW, I mean, changed the face of professional wrestling. Did you kind of expect that when you created the NWO? No, not at all. You know, it's, you know, I, I always, you know, I talk about this a lot on my podcast, but, you know, people have a tendency to kind of remember history the, the way they choose to. And, and oftentimes as, as 
guys who grew up in the wrestling business as talent. Um, and I, and I count myself in that a little bit, even though I was never a wrestler, you know, the, the psychology of always trying to get yourself over and staying relevant and staying, you know, important to a story. It's kind of second nature to, to people who have, you know, come up in the wrestling culture. And, you know, as guys get older, you know, people in my, my, your group, I guess, and, and guys who are older than me, I listen to them retell stories over and over and over again. And every time they retell the story, their role in a given situation or the way they frame it tends to just get more and more, um, how shall I say, colorful. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, for me, I, I try to be really honest about things because it's easier for me to, to be grateful for the experiences I've had when I kind of keep it all in context and perspective. And I would be lying to myself or anybody else that paid close attention. If I were to suggest that for a moment, you know, I was sitting in a room with a notepad and a pen, or I had these ideas in my head and I knew I was a hundred percent confident that it was going to grow to be as big as, as it became. Um, none of us did. Even while we were doing it, we didn't really recognize just how big it was. And for me personally, it's not until 20, 20 some odd years later that I reflect back on it and go, wow, that really was some badass stuff. We really, we changed a lot of things. Uh, and, and it still resonates to this day, man. It's still, it's still, well, by virtue of the fact we're all getting together on April 22nd, Philadelphia mm -hmm. to, to, to meet the fans as the NWO, it, it's still, it just proves that it still resonates to this day. Absolutely. And like you said, it's about 20 years or so, uh, actually it's almost 21 years now since the NWO. And that was really wrestling's at its peak. And a lot of people say it saved wrestling. I mean, I'm going to definitely say it, it definitely had a huge part in saving the business, the Hogan heel turn. Obviously, you know, you turn heel, Hall and Nash was like the perfect storm at that time. The NWO, it, it, I mean, just so awesome. Can you just believe that, you know, 20 years later, not only we're we still watching it, people are still wearing NWO shirts. Kendall Jenner is wearing NWO or, you know, Aziz Ansari. Can you believe that people, you know, are still a cult phenomenon? No, it's, it, it, it's, it, it is amazing. And, you know, when I go to different events, or even when I'm watching, you know, WWE, if, you know, if I watch Raw tonight, I'm pretty sure somebody in that audience is wearing an NWO shirt. Um, I, I go to these different events, you know, and I, I only go to a handful or so a year, but inevitably I, you know, I'll show up at a, you know, at a, at a con type of an event or comic con or, or like you guys are doing and people be wearing their NWO merch. And some of it's like brand new merchandise. Some of it, you know, cause the WWE owns the trademark obviously. And they're coming out with, you know, kind of cooler, newer versions of the NWO merchandise. So it's, it's just, it's gratifying to see it. It just, it makes me smile. Until I think about the fact that I'm not making any money off of it, then I kind of get a little <laughs> irritated, but, but that's okay too. You know, with the NWO, I feel like, you know, so many things have been talked about, you know, it's so hard, you know, to get like people's original opinion on it. But I feel like, like you said before, it's almost like people kind of change some stories over the years. You look back at the NWO, think about what it spawned off of it. I don't know if you kind of agree or disagree, but Austin versus McMahon is a copy off of it to an extent because it's the, the system versus these guys that are trying to take down the system. 
aka Austin, trying to take down McMahon. DX might be the biggest ripoff of the NWO of all time. You know, there's so many things that the NWO spawned, and so many things that copied off of it. Does that ever annoy you or bother you that people kind of have revisionist history where they're not giving the NWO, you know, the credit it deserves? Not anymore. It it used to bother me a lot more um, years ago because, you know, my ego was still very much involved in, you know, my pride. I'm a human, you know, I, I, I have, I have an ego and I have pride. And, and there were times, you know, years ago, um, when I'd get irritated, when I'd, I'd hear people, you know, almost forget that the NWO is what kind of launched that anarchy type theme, because that's really what it was. Um, and I, I, and I do think, you know, that, that, you know, Vince McMahon turning heel, um, a year after I did, by the way, um, mm, yep. and, 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 and kind of going from the, you know, stuff suit, you know, announcer that nobody really associated as being the owner of the company. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's showing up in a black jean jacket and he's, you know, the evil boss a year after I did it, it was kind of, you know, it used to irritate me, but here's, here's what I've learned over the years. Number one, it doesn't matter. So why get upset about it? Cause it's not going to change anything. <laughs> First of all, but secondly, if you really break down any story and you can, you can go back in time and I won't bore your listeners with too much detail here. Cause I can go off into the weeds on this, but I'm reading a book now called the seven basic plots actually is the name, the title of the book, I believe. I think it's written by a guy by the name of Christopher Boone. I'm not sure off the look. And in, in essence, there are really seven basic storyline plots. And it, and it goes back hundreds and thousands of years across different civilizations and different cultures before there was any form of, you know, communication outside of a tribe or a region, you know, the, the human experience and the, this human psychology tends to create stories that are very familiar in, in the human psyche. So again, not to go too deep on you, but when you look at, you know, a movie like jaws and you realize that that's kind of a story that was told thousands of years ago. And you look at, you can Google just about any current film and you can find the roots of that story in something that was hot 15, 20, 25 years ago. So well, now that I look at story and I kind of look at the evolution of storytelling from a little different perspective, it doesn't bother me at all. It's, it, if anything, it's flattering. You know, if, if I feel anything at all, when people talk about stuff like that, I, I know, you know, I know where a lot of this stuff came from, at least within wrestling. I know what started it And and by the way, you know, the four horsemen are around before the NWO. Now the story was different. The, the, the perspective or the point of view of the four horsemen was clearly much different than the perspective and the point of view of the NWO, but it was still, you know, a group of badass guys, you know, getting together and taking over. So it could be argued that the NWO is a derivative of the four horsemen and, and there'd probably be some truth to that. That's a good point. And it's funny, like with the heel McMahon, for instance, obviously, you know, there was heel Eric Bischoff first. And that was another thing that I feel like was lifted a bit. And then I feel like 
people that are ECW fans, they lift the idea that all the Attitude Era was spawned by us. All the Attitude Era was really spawned by the NWO, Hall, Nash, and Hogan turning heel. Did did that ever bother you to a point where it's like, wow, why are they giving these guys so much credit when it was us, you know, that beat Vince McMahon for two straight years? Well, I think, I mean, it's kind of apples, oranges, and bricks. You know, it's, you know, apples and oranges are two edible fruit species. So I guess it's, it's easy to understand why people could kind of confuse or distort the relationship between the NWO and, and the Attitude Era, for example. I personally don't. And, you know, Sean, who I'll be with, you know, with you, you know, April 22nd, we've talked about this on our podcast. You know, one of the reasons, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, but one of the reasons why the, you know, DX in the Attitude Era was as successful as it was, was because of Sean Waltman. Because Sean Waltman gave it credibility. Sean Waltman, just like Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were the two guys that came over and kind of turned WCW upside down. Sean Waltman was the guy that left the NWO and went over to WWE and they came back and turned WCW upside down. So I, I think Sean Waltman probably deserves a lot more credit in the overall success of, of the Attitude Era and the NWO than people really give him credit for. Um, but ECW, going back to that, you know, I, I never watched ECW. First of all, it was, it was only available on a very limited kind of scale. Um, in and it just wasn't my cup of tea anyway. And I think one thing that, you know, I mean, Paul Heyman did a lot of amazing things. You know, and I'm friends with a lot of guys that were right there the, at the epicenter of it. Uh, you know, Bubba Dudley's a good friend of mine. And we stay in touch and we talk. We've talked a lot over the years. We've worked together. We've worked in creative together. We've worked in the ring together. Um, we, we've sat in a room full of dozens of people and listened to them babble about what they thought they knew about storytelling and wrestling. And we both look at each other and just roll our eyes. Um, but Bubba, you know, Bubba will be the first one to, to tell me, you know, how innovative Paul Heyman was. And I recognize that, but there was a difference between the Paul Heyman style of innovation and some of the crazy stuff that Paul did, which was really out of the box in, in terms of way of presenting wrestling at that time, Paul innovated a lot of crazy stuff, but there was nothing but Paul did that was anywhere, in my opinion, remotely close to, again, the storytelling perspective in the arc of the NWL. Nothing. Totally agree. And I feel like a lot of his stuff, if you really watch, you know, like maybe Memphis or Florida back in the day, he kind of, he lifted some stuff when the NWO was kind of definitely more impactful, definitely more innovative. So where did, like, the idea of you spawning the NWO, is it true that you kind of, not, obviously, not lifted it. Anybody says that you lifted it is pretty stupid. But, um, you know, the idea was that kind of, like, did you get anything from Japan? Was any, like, New Japan storyline or anything like that? It wasn't a New Japan storyline. And, and I, I get, you know, I've, I've gone into this conversation a lot, and, and I, I never really seem to do a very good do- job articulating it. But th- there was a period of time before the NWO, 94, 95 in particular, when 93, 94, but especially in early part of 1995, when I was spending a lot of time in Japan and this is where all the, you know, the internet wrestling community needs to get out a pencil and a paper and take some very, (laughs) very, you know, detailed notes here. But 
I, I was going over to Japan on a regular basis. And what I studied while I was there, and when I say studied, I'm just a very observant person by nature. And I was, you know, WCW was flat on its back at that time. We couldn't get 1,200 people to buy a ticket to a giant pay-per-view if our lives depended on it. We would show up and do TV tapings and maybe 125 people would show up and half of them would be drunk with a bottle of cheap wine in a brown paper bag. They'd fall asleep halfway through the show. I mean, we were dead as dead could be as a brand and a property. And I was trying really hard to study the way other successful people presented wrestling to try to figure out a solution to the WCW challenge at that time. And because I was spending a lot of time in Japan, I was studying the psychology of the storytelling that was presented in Japan. Because if at that time, I haven't been over there now in, in many years, but at that time, wrestling was treated like a, a sport. It was treated just like soccer. It was treated like you know, Japanese baseball, which is massive over there. It, it had a lot of credibility. The big Tokyo Dome shows would, you know, you, uh, you, you'd go on a, you know, Saturday night and on Sunday morning you get up and it would be in the f on the front headlines of the sports page. And I, I, I spent so much time learning about the, the psychology in Japanese storytelling and how they did such a phenomenal job of convincing the audience that what they were seeing was real. And it allowed the audience to forget that it was, hey, it's professional wrestling. It, it wasn't like that in Japan back then. It was very believable and very credible. So as I studied the, the storytelling and the presentation technique that was so successful in Japan, because back then they were putting 60, 75,000 people in the Tokyo Dome you know, at an average ticket price of $120 a ticket. So it was like, okay, I got to figure this out. And I, one of the common kind of denominators that I kept discovering in the, the analysis of the psychology and the, the storytelling process there was the, the, the takeover idea. And it's, again, it's war. It's one country taking over another country. It's, it's, you know, it's one gang wanting to take over another gang's neighborhood. It, it was back in my days when I was in martial arts. You know, the first thing you did if you wanted to open a karate school was go go to the, your your competitor's karate school and kick the instructor's butt. Hmm. You know, that's just the way. It's just it's human nature. Like I talked about as we opened up. So I was studying the different things that worked in Japan, and that's when the light bulbs, and it wasn't like one big giant light bulb. It was like a little flicker of a light over here and a little flicker of a light over there and one over there that happened over the course of four, five, six, or seven months, way before I even really conceived of the NWO, the, the formation of that storytelling kind of approach. The psychology had been really brewing inside of my skull for really about a year. And then what it was, John, more than anything, it was like the perfect storm of this storytelling psychology that I've been kind of trying to formulate after being in Japan that just cross paths uh, uniquely with the availability of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. And the fact that both Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were in WCW 
before they went to the WWE to become big stars. They left WCW feeling like they were mistreated and underappreciated, which is not unusual for wrestling talent. But they left with, I don't want to say a, a chip on their shoulder, but kind of. So that when the, uh, the those little light bulbs that have been kind of flickering on and off inside of my skull for a year or so, you know, kind of still kept flickering. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, now I've got two guys that used to be in WCW who went over to WWE, became big stars, and now they were coming back to prove WCW wrong, to take out, to take revenge. They were coming over to take over the neighborhood. That's the story. And it's a basic fundamental story. It's not some genius, you know, Shakespearean tale. It's a pretty basic story, but it was a basic story that was believable. And that's in my opinion, why it worked. And it's the greatest storyline ever in the history of wrestling, period. I mean, a lot of people like Austin McMahon or even Hogan Savage from back in the day. But I'll go WCW, NWO, any day a week. And I love that earlier in 95, you had New Japan Pro Wrestling kind of take over WCW Pro. And then there was Starcade 95. So you were kind of building up the, you know, the war storyline. It kind of, right with New Japan, when they had that feud for the, for, you know, the World Cup of Wrestling, you were kind of building it up in a way. Very much so. I mean, that's, you know, when I was saying, when I was saying earlier, you know, the, the, the light bulbs were kind of flickering over here and flickering over there. That's really what I'm talking about. There were elements of the NWO story that were building in my mind, but it, it really wasn't until the nexus of, you know, the idea and the psychology or the desire to tell a story with that kind of psychology that had been building, at least in my head and, and to some extent on television, as you point out, but when Scott Hall and Kevin Nash became available and then all of a sudden that fictional storyline had such an element of reality that people could allow themselves to believe. I, I knew, I didn't know how big it was going to be, but I knew it was going to be big, which is why I worked so hard to keep it a secret. So it, it didn't get out before, you know, people didn't read the reviews of the restaurant before they sampled the appetizer. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously, you know, the huge moment that made it all worthwhile that got everyone talking at the water cooler. I mean, I remember, um, like parents of ours were like, Oh, Hogan turned bad. I can't believe like everyone was talking about Hogan's heel turn at, at Bash of the beach. 96. Did it take a lot of convincing on your part to get him to do it? Because he was, you know, he's beloved. He's Hulk Hogan. He's the God of professional wrestling. Well, there's two chapters to that story. You know, chapter one was, uh, it took place about a year before, um, sometime in 94, um, or excuse me, 95, may have been late 94, early 95. Uh, when I went to visit Hulk, you know, at his home, because the story we were telling with Hulk wasn't really working. Um, the people weren't buying into, you know, the red and yellow baby face Hulk Hogan character that they knew from WWE. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but you know, we both, you know, Hulk Hogan knew it. He was going out to the ring. He could, you know, he's, he's even by, even by that time, he, you know, he was the professor. He knew, he knew psychology. He knew how to read a room when it came to wrestling. And he knew that it just wasn't getting over the way he wanted it to. I certainly knew from a business perspective that it wasn't getting over the way I needed it to. So we were both aware of it. We were both aware of it. We just, neither one of us were sure how to fix it going back again to late 94, early 90, probably early 95. So it was in sometime in 95. I, I can't remember that far back really, but 
it was sometime in 95, I went to Hulk's house. This is now we're in chapter one of the story. And I sat down with Hulk and I, I tried to convince him that maybe, you know, a heel turn was the lightning in the bottle that, that Hulk Hogan needed to turn it around for him as a performer. And for me, you know, on the business side. And, you know, I, I won't repeat the story in detail here because people probably heard it or read it in my book, but he very politely showed me the door, you know, in, in, in an elegant, friendly way. But it was like he looked at his watch and said, okay, well, I appreciate you coming down and I got to pick my kids up at school. So, you know, grab a beer on your way out the door. See you. See you next time. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it was that kind of thing, you know, and I did. I went off. I said, because oh, my, my relationship, my business relationship with Hulk was such that, you know, we only used him four times a year. He was kind of like the undertaker back then. You know what I mean? He was a specialty yep. guy, came in four times a year. His contract only called for four appearances, you know, on pay-per-views and then a couple TVs leading up to each one of those pay-per-views. So it wasn't like I had to hurry home and try to figure out a solution. Um, so I went back and I figured, okay, we're going to go about our business and we'll figure it out at some point. And now, you know, chapter two is sometime around the end of May of 96 after Scott Hogg. I remember that date in particular because it was my birthday, May 27th, 1996 in Macon, Georgia. Scott Hogg comes down through the crowd and, hey, yo, you know, you know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here kind of thing. That was the, that was when we lit the fuse, Right. And then, oh, you yeah. know, short, shortly thereafter, Kevin Nash shows up. Well, about that time, I got a phone call from Hulk Hogan, who was away doing a movie. Now we're in the middle of chapter two. It had been almost a year since I had tried to talk Hulk into, you know, considering, you know, a character turn, if you will. Now, a year later, he calls me. He was on a movie set in California. He, he couldn't leave. So he calls me and said, hey, bro, can you get on a plane and get out to L.A.? I said, well, sure, but why? And he said, ah, I just kind of want to talk to you about some ideas I have and see where things are going. So I jumped on a plane, showed up on his movie set one night after he was done filming. And, you know, we sat in his trailer and he cracked out a Cuban cigar and a six pack of Miller Lite. And he said, okay, bro, who's the third guy? I said, oh, sir, who do you think it should be? And he got that, you know, he stroked that Fu Manchu and he got that gleam in his eyes like, brother, you're looking at him. I said, okay. Hulk was smart enough to see that this tide was turning and that it was turning in a very positive way. And the timing, he, he wanted to turn heel, but a year earlier or eight months earlier, whatever it was, the timing wasn't right for him. The story wasn't right. The it just it would have been a forced character turn with no real logic behind it. Now with the NWO and the way we set it up, there was logic behind it for him. And the rest is history. Oof, what a night and obviously what an epic moment in wrestling is just one of those things you just never forget in wrestling is unbelievable. And then you know, the NWO was the black and the white, the, the, the attitude, the theme song, the way they cut promos, the way they took over the show, the way they weren't doing that wrestle speak. You know, they were actually speaking like normal humans with like, you know, a little bit of a, an attitude to them. 
whose idea was kind of a lot of that? Was a lot of that Hall and Nash, or was a lot of that you? Was it Hogan? Like, who comes up with most of that awesome, you know, NWO stuff? Yeah, you know, the 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 foundation of it was mine because the foundation was, you know, I wanted these guys to come off as real people. I wanted a reality-based storyline, and that was the way I explained it to the producers that I was working with, the creative team I was working with, everybody from the art department who were coming up with ideas for the NWO logo to a guy by the name of Craig Leathers, who was our kind of director and creative producer, you know, kind of oversaw the creative edit process. You know, they were all, you know, I, I, I kind of painted a very broad picture if you will, of what the NWO was and what the vibe was and what the aspect ratio or the perspective of it was. Um, and then it was from that point it became, and, and as well as Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, and it, it then became a collaborative effort. You know, Scott Hall had a lot to do with it. Scott Hall brought a lot of attitude to it. So did Kevin Nash. So did Sean Waltman. Um, so did Conan. Um, so did a lot of people. So did a lot of people that if I mentioned their names, nobody listening to this would ever have ever heard of them before. You know, the guys they they came up with the logo. Um, I don't even remember what their names are. <laughs> that's that's how they might have been. Um, they might have been a work for hire third party for all I know. But they were directed by or inspired by the kind of theme that we set out very early on which is I don't want this to feel like a traditional wrestling angle. I want it to be reality-based. I don't want it to be cartoony or animated or presented in the same way everybody's been presenting the product for decades. I want it to feel edgy and real and believable. And then, like I say, it became very collaborative. Just it's just thinking back, and obviously it still resonates with me today. It was just awesome, like the way everything was done, whether it was surprise guys, even Virgil was funny. Like Vincent, when he was surprise guy, was done well. DiBiase was an awesome surprise guy. Six was an awesome surprise guy. Even you know bringing in a guy like Dennis Rodman, it was just any kind of thing you guys threw out there it worked i feel like the shock value was there the realism was there were you feeling at that time it was almost like anything even your heel turn was awesome with piper you know you're a liar so i mean did you feel at that point that you were kind of dealing all you know all aces you were you were just coming out with great things one thing after another creatively uh no i don't recall feeling that way or thinking that way i and it's it's hard to be honest about that because it's hard to kind of put myself back in those moments and try to remember what what was I thinking about, you know, our success at that moment. Because remember, I was still fighting a lot of fights. I was still fighting battles for, you know, budget. I was still trying to, you know, I was still trying to compete. I was still trying to solve licensing and marketing issues. I was still there was still a lot of work to be done. So it wasn't like I got to, you know, go do a show and then sit around and pat myself on the back for six more days until we went out and did it again. So, it, it, but I. You know, reflecting back at it now, I think it's fair to say we got a we we got a, away with a, a lot of mistakes. Clearly, early on, because the momentum was so huge that you know I would disagree with all due respect to Ted DiBiase, who I, I you know respect him immensely as a performer and a guy who has a legacy in the industry. And to me, he was a failed um, experiment with the NWO. And not because of him. It was because of me. It was bad casting to take a guy like 
Ted DiBiase at that stage of his career and, and throw an NWO shirt on him was, it's just bad casting. It's not that he was a bad actor or that it was a bad story that we, he was being cast in. It's just as a character, he was a square peg in a round story hole and it didn't quite fit. You know, Virgil and, and all of, and I appreciate what you're saying about them being great surprises and they were because it was the crossover. Anytime somebody that people recognize and there was that momentum when it looked like everybody who was anybody was coming into the NWO and to WCW because we were the hottest party to be to be at right so every time someone did you know you got a great reaction but sometimes that great reaction only lasted for a couple weeks and then it it started to dilute the story and i think ted dibiase was is an example of that again through no fault of his own really through mine and and just forcing him into a situation that he wasn't right for um and i don't mean forcing him contractually or anything but just you know allowing that to happen was my call uh, I think Virgil probably same thing. I think six was brilliant because of the chemistry between them, um, between Scott and Kevin and, and X-Pac was so right that it was perfect casting. Um, but there were mistakes. And I think, you know, I look back at it now and, you know, we all walk around and go, man, I just, if I would have known then what I know now, I, I could have had a lot more fun and made a lot less mistakes, <laughs> but <laughs> of course, at, at that time you get caught up in the momentum and it's like, okay, let's build it. Let's grow it. You know, let's make it bigger t- this week than it was last week. And that came back to bite me in the ass. Clearly. I think it was with the NWO is, you know, obviously, you know, you're beating Vince for basically two years in a row. You know, everyone says 84 straight weeks, but basically WBF won one week and, you know, here or there, you guys were killing them. So, I mean, it's really in essence, you guys were winning for basically two years, just beating them. But the way it started, I thought, was pure genius on your point, on your part. And I feel like it wasn't discussed as much. I mean, so many people, I mean, you obviously you have Bischoff on Wrestling, the podcast, and Nick Houseman's on there. He's asking a lot of good questions and stuff. And there's so many fans that ask you good questions. But I feel like the rating strategy of Nitro, you haven't really discussed it as much. When Nitro was first going up against Raw, I was like, wow, how the hell did they beat them kind of right off the bat? And I've always been kind of curious. And I know you said this a while back, but you kind of studied when they took commercial breaks. You studied when they did this. You studied when they did that. You almost had like a sheet, right? And you were putting what you want to do and what they were doing. Like, how did you kind of beat them right at, right out of the gate? And it's kind of like, it's, it's the subtle difference between tactics and strategy um, in warfare. But, you know, we had a unique advantage. We had a tactical advantage in that we owned the network we were on, which is one of the reasons we decided to go live because we were live and because we owned and controlled the network, we could time our show so that we could be in hot action while we knew because they were a tape show. We knew we could time some of our hottest action when they were in an Oreo cookie commercial (laughs) and people were getting up to go to the refrigerator over a Monday night raw. And we knew that we could motivate them to, to come to turn over and sample us. And that was really the whole, that was really the, the beginning of that strategy was look, we just need them to sample us and hope that they like us better. 
and you know, going back to you know, we launched our show when we knew that they were going to be off because of the the dog show on the USA Network. They got preempted every year, still do. Um, I believe. I don't know. I don't pay attention anymore. But you know, the the uh, Westminster Dog Show, you know, was a big damn deal for USA Network, and we knew that they were going to get preempted for a week or two weeks, whatever it was. So we decided, all right, if we're going to launch our show, let's launch it when they're when they they're on a hiatus, and we'll promote it to that wrestling audience and we know at least for that one night they'll come over and they'll sample us and then week after week after week we kept adjusting our format so that we could find those little incremental moments when they would be on a commercial break hiatus and we had the luxury of adjusting our format the timing of our format so that we could be in some intense hot action and introducing something that we knew the wrestling audience was really going to be interested in and it was just over a period of time that that the combination of that strategy and the tactical advantage that we had started to really bear fruit. Didn't, it didn't happen immediately, but it happened pretty quickly because we were able to set the stage. We set the stage with Lex Luger the night that, you know, wrestling fans were either going to watch the Westminster dog show and watch a beagle walk around a ring, or they were going to tune into nitro and see what that was all about. That particular night, we had Lex Luger show up when the whole world, including Vince McMahon, thought that Lex Luger was under a WWE contract. That one move right there um, told the wrestling fan and the audience that this was not just another wrestling show. Something else was going on here. That was such an epic night as well in Monday Nitro, and it kind of really set the stage for the Monday Night Wars because... Oh wow, Luger! What the hell? Vince doesn't you know Vince like you said. Vince doesn't even know he's under WCW deal now. You know, Sting and Flair. Then you you know you had Macho Man and Flair had a few. I feel like there's so many things that WCW was doing right at that point that kind of really really made it a war because, like you said, WWF was doing the same old thing with the PG and they're doing every you know cartoony animated thing you expected them to do. So by being different and doing surprises and doing the Mall of America and stuff like that really set you apart and really kind of set off Monday night, the Monday Night Wars, but it also set off wrestling into highest ratings that, uh, you know, pretty much they're ever going to see, especially if you add up all shows. I mean, that's you know, 20, uh, 15 million fans watching Monday Night Raw and Monday Night Nitro each night, right? I don't know that it was that high. Um, you know, you, you got to remember, and this is, you know, s- some of the voodoo that is associated with you know, television ratings and people's interpretation of them is, you know, the, the, without going into a, you know, lengthy explanation of it and losing your audience. Um, basically the way Nielsen measures television ratings is for the very first few, few moments of every or few, few minutes of every quarter hour. And then they kind of average it and extrapolate it and come up with a number and they expect the advertising community to buy it. But what, you know, you, what I figured out early on about the wrestling audience is, and if you talk to anybody, probably including yourself, everybody was flipping back and forth throughout that quarter hour. So I think there was a lot of duplication in the overall rating. So, for example, if you know Nitro hit a five and Raw hit a four, and everybody goes, "Wow, it was a total rating point of nine points," it probably wasn't. It was probably just the same people bouncing back and forth. <laughs> you know, it's like, imagine it this way. There's two houses next door to each other, and they both throw a party on the same night. And 100 people decide to go to both of those parties. At any given moment, 
there may be 60 people at one party and 40 at the other, but depending on what was going on at the party, you know, 10 or 12, you know, you, you, you could have a 10 or 20% different attendance between the houses because they were so close together. All you had to do was walk next door to see what was going on over here. So there was a lot of duplication in that number. Um, I don't, I mean, I agree with you that I don't think wrestling has seen, nor will it ever see the level of viewership in cable television that it experienced back then. Um, that I think is a true statement, but I think when people get fixated on the numbers too much, they can, the old saying, you know, I don't think numbers lie, but they can be deceiving as hell. That's a good point. You know, there was a lot of you know, flipping or switching back and forth between Raw and Nitro, but the Monday Night Wars captivated the audience. I mean, people were just, you know, more, it feels like more obsessed with wrestling or, or you know, maybe um, just kind of coming out to the show more. Obviously, nowadays, the ratings are, oof, terrible. If you looked at Raw one week uh, before Bill Goldberg kind of came back, the rating was worse than when Raw was versus Nitro, and Nitro was kicking their ass. So it's obviously, you know, less, less people are watching now than they did. But when you look at wrestling now, you see so much imprints of WCW through the years. Like, WCW was the first one to do pay-per-view every month. WCW was the first one to create Thunder. Then there's SmackDown. There's a three-hour Nitro. Then the three-hour Raw. Uh, WCW with the cruiserweights now you see cruiserweight classic in 205 live you ever look back and kind of like wow you know i uh, you know i left a bigger imprint on the wrestling business than maybe a lot of people give me credit for you know i didn't uh i i again i don't think about it too much because i don't i don't live in the past anybody that knows me really well knows that to be true i mean i just i'm grateful for a lot of things in my past but i don't dwell on them or think about it I do, you know, in an interview like this, I'll, I'll respond to these things. But just in the course of my everyday existence, it's the last thing that flashes through my mind in any given in any given year. But I did an interview with with JBL called Legends with JBL on a WWE network, and I did that about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now. And you know, I know JBL pretty well. We're, we're I don't say I know him well, but we're we're pretty good friends. And when he called me, to, you know, I was the first real guest that he had on that series that, that was on the network. And he said, man, I, I want you to be on the show. You're going to be the first guest. You know, everybody's excited about it. You know, do you want to go over the interview? And I said, John, not really. Because if we go over it, then my responses to it are not going to be, I will have thought about it. And if I think about it, I'm going to say it differently than I'll feel it in my heart when I hear that question for the very first time. So I said, let's just, we'll, we'll just do it and we'll figure it out after that. And when JBL opened up that interview, he basically just said everything you said and, and laid out all of the things that I did or Nitro did really, um, that set the tone for some of the very same things that WWE is built upon to this very day, but it was coming from JBL's perspective, not from mine. And I, when he said, when he did that, I almost, it was like getting kicked in the chest by a horse. It was like, Whoa, I didn't expect anybody in WWE to say that. <laughs> I would expect right, my yeah. son to say, it. I would expect my son to say that, but I wouldn't expect, you know, somebody from WWE on their own network to say it because it is true. And historically, WWE doesn't typically acknowledge 
um, that kind of thing. You know, they tend to want the world to believe that anything that was ever created that anybody's ever really enjoyed, you know, in sports entertainment was created under the guidance and, you know, by, by the hands of Vince McMahon himself. And that's not true, but they did a, a great job of laying that out. So I, I'm grateful to them and I'm grateful for you to, for bringing that up. And then even taking a step further, if you go watch today, Raw versus SmackDown, kind of sounds like WCW versus the NWO and how you were almost going to split the brand, right? You were going to split it off and make it two separate shows. Well, that was, yeah, and that wasn't my, it's not that I wanted to do that. It wasn't a decision. It was a mandate. Well, it was a decision, mm. but it was a, it was a decision by Ted Turner. It had nothing to do with me. I actually, I, when I say I fought it, I have to be careful because that makes it sound like I tried to stand up to Ted Turner and I didn't, I wish I would have, um, things would have turned out differently had I done so, but there was a guy that, you know, people don't talk about him too much anymore because they never really understood what his role really was in WCW. Um, but Brad Siegel was the president of the TNT network when we launched nitro and Brad was a supporter of mine early on. And Brett, when, when the mandate came down from Ted to launch a show on TBS, which was going, which became thunder, um, I didn't want to do it. Believe me, I didn't want to do it because we were stretched so thin, um, just from an infrastructure perspective, you know, the, the, the office, you know, people in the office were working, you know, 16 hours a day. Not all of them, but the ones that mattered were, um, our production staff was, you know, working 16 and 18 hours a day, five and six and seven days a week. Our talent roster, although it was, you know, pretty substantial in terms of the, the talent that really moved the needle on a predictable basis, uh, they were stretched pretty thin. And the last thing I wanted to do was dilute the success that we were enjoying by doing another show, you know, as, here's the example I give people all the time. I love great sushi, but I can't eat it five nights a week. I can enjoy it twice a week. I really enjoy it once a week. And if I only get to have it once every two weeks, now I crave it. But if, if I have to eat sushi five or six nights a week, I get sick of it. No matter how much I started out loving it. And that's the way I felt you know, that's what I felt was going to happen to WCW and to Nitro by adding another two hours of content on TBS. But, you know, Brad, Brad tried to fight that fight for me because Brad was at a level higher than I was. I, you know, he was, Brad was a president of TNT and he had a louder voice in the room with Ted than I did. Um, but you know, we lost and Ted won and we lot, we launched that show. But, um, the idea with the NWO, people ask me, I'll say, oh, why'd you add so many people? Well, <laughs> because I knew I had to come up with another show on TBS and I wanted to create a WCW versus NWO kind of brand split. That was the original intent. The, the execution was horrible, but the intent was honorable. Yes, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a, a valiant effort. I mean, I still, obviously, I, mean, I was still watching, I was still into it. It obviously, you know, time tells it didn't get over as well it should and it kind of diluted 
nitro a bit and it kind of took away and the nitro was three hours and, and it kind of took away from the guys but i just had a random question about wcw during your your time and i never really heard anybody kind of ask it to you you might be the most loyal guy i've i've ever seen because look at all the awa guys you brought in obviously sunny ono an old friend of yours you brought in not to say that they didn't deserve to be in wcw and stuff but when you had Zabisco have a huge storyline in WCW, I don't think a lot of people know that he helped you out a lot in the AWA. Scott Hall, I mean, obviously, no no brain or signing, but kind of another guy you were very loyal to because he was loyal to you in the AWA. You brought in um, you know, Rick Martell and John Norton and all these guys. Is that true? Were you being loyal to a lot of the AWA guys at the time and kind of bringing them on board? Because it seems like you were. Um, well, I mean, a couple, you know, Scott Hall was, had left AWA before I got there. So I, oh. I didn't work with Scott in, in the AWA. So clearly, you know, that, that that's one example of, you know, it wasn't loyalty. It was familiarity. Um, I was familiar. I was very familiar with Scott Hall because I was, a, I lived in Minneapolis when Scott, you know, had a big run in the AWA with Kurt Hennig. And I was a huge fan of Kurt Hennig. Uh, before I ever got into the business, I was a huge fan of Kurt and Larry the Axe Hennig and subsequently Scott Hall when he was teaming up with Kurt. Um, so I was very familiar with Scott because of the AWA, but certainly wasn't loyal to him. Um, Scott Norton, I had worked with in AWA and I was not only familiar with him, but I, I knew what, or I believed I knew what he was capable of because of that familiarity. Uh, Larry Zabisco was in WCW before I got there. He left AWA, went to WCW and had been there for probably six months or a year before I hadn't even, I had even gotten the gig. But again, same thing. I was very familiar with Larry cause I worked so closely with him that in my mind, at least it, his ability to deliver, I felt really comfortable with because of my experience with him. And I think it's more really familiarity than it was loyalty. And I am a loyal person by nature. You know, I mean, especially when it comes to business relationships and, you know, things like that, it's like, you know, I'm still to this day, you know, I'll get a tear in my eye if I talk too much about Vern Gagne because I, I'm so grateful for the opportunities that he gave me. And even Greg Gagne, even though we've had our differences over the years and things like that, when it comes down to, respecting people for the opportunities that they, they provided me or people that I know and, and what they've contributed, you know, I'm a loyal by, person that way by nature. Um, but I don't think my use of former AWA talents was as much about loyalty as it was familiarity. I knew what I could expect and I knew what I could get out of them because I was so familiar with who they were and what their capabilities were, it was easy for me to try to imagineer, if you will, a character or a storyline based on their abilities because I'd already worked with them. Hmm. Great point. I, I was always just very curious that, but that is a great point. And another thing you always hear about Eric Bischoff, ATM Eric, or, or he was spending money and, you know, silly things like that. And I've always been more of a WCW fan. I always liked Nitro more. I always thought, you know, just that I liked the talent better. I thought it, you know, I'm a huge Sting guy. I just thought everything worked better with WCW kind of when you were at the helm. But, you, you know, you ever get annoyed hearing that? Because that just is silly. Because if, if that is true, then why aren't the Yankees, you know, World Series champs every year? Um, obviously, you know, during the 90s. But that was when they were a little bit smarter. Now they were spending more and not winning. So, 
you know, the ATM thing, the guarantee contracts. Could you just touch on that a little bit? Because I even get annoyed at it a little bit because it's just quite silly because obviously Vince kind of does similar things. It, you know, you asked the question was, does it bother me? And, you know, yeah. I'll go back to what I said, you know, 20 minutes ago or so. It used to bother me because I'm also, well, I, you know, try to be loyal in, in so many ways. I also, I call BS, you know, I, and I, to this year, you listen to my podcast, you know, I've got, I'm wearing a t-shirt right now that says we call bullshit <laughs> because <laughs> that's kind of the theme on our show. And so much of that ATM Eric kind of nonsense was the narrative that was first created when, you know, Paul Heyman was getting his butt kicked and had to have an enemy that he could rally his troops around in order to keep him showing up to work, you know, every weekend. Um, it was the narrative that you know, Vince McMahon tried to use when he came up with his billionaire Ted skits. It's a false narrative, but it was an effective one. And that false narrative really kind of took root and, and, and those roots got deeper and deeper and deeper every year, but it's still a false narrative. You know, the facts are that when I took over WCW, it was a $24 million a year company that was losing $10 million a year in the process and had never made a nickel of profit from the time Ted Turner had purchased them out of bankruptcy from the Crockett family when it was NWA and had been losing money hand over fist. So that's what I inherited. I inherited a company that was within moments of being evaporated, um, because of some of the crazy, st stupid, ignorant stuff that Bill Watts did that was making headlines. Not only was he losing money hand over fist, he was, you know, saying a lot of things and doing a lot of things, you know, publicly that if he were to do them today, he, I, I, I think he'd be deported. <laughs> I think he'd do federal prison time the way, the way things are today. But that's what I inherited. And what I did my first year or two on, in that position, because I was too young and too naive to know better, I thought, wow, I'm going to be the first person in the history of WCW, which to me, you know, seemed like a long history. Now looking back, it was a moment, but I'm going to be the first person in, in history to turn this company around and make at least $1 a profit. And the very first thing that I did was cut costs. It's one of the reasons I got heat right out of the shoot when I took over wrestling is I looked at the house show schedule and I, and I'm, and by, by the way, I am not a finance guy, never claimed to be one, but I sat down with the, 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 the live event division of the company and I said, okay, what's our plan for next year in live events? I said, oh, we're going to increase the number of live events from 180 to 220. I went, okay. And What's that going to cost? And then once you run the numbers on that, in my simple non-financial mind, I'm going to wait a minute. You mean every time we went out the door this year, we lost 10 bucks. So your way of fixing that is instead of going out the door 180 times and losing 10 bucks, you want to go out the door 220 times and lose 10 bucks. You're not fixing the problem. You're growing the problem. 
And we had a limited amount of resources. We, you know, Ted Turner didn't hire me, or Ted Turner, first of all, didn't, Ted Turner didn't hire me to begin with. But I didn't get the role, and I didn't, get, you know, become the president of WCW. And somebody walked over and said, "Here's Ted Turner's, you know, Platinum American Express or you know, Black American Express. Go do whatever you want." I had to fight for everything, and the first thing I did was cut costs. I cut the house show business down to almost nothing. Can you imagine how the talent that was on the roster that was hoping to stay under contract because WCW was doing 150 or 180 house shows a year, now all of a sudden I pulled the plug on house shows. So guess what kind of reputation I had there? I got a lot of heat. Guess what kind of reputation I had within the office when there were people, some of whom were highly paid executives making six figures a year, all of a sudden became irrelevant because I could wipe out that entire division because it wasn't making any money. Got a lot of heat for that. And all of the peripheral people that were able to hang around were so fearful because I was gutting the company in order to save money. And I, and I tell the story, I, I had a meeting one time with a, a group of, I don't know if they were VPs or directors, and it was probably eight or 10 people in the, in the meeting. And I walked into the meeting and I said, okay, I want everybody in this room to go back to your office and count the number of pens and pencils in your desk and then come back to this meeting. And they all looked at me like I was stoned. I, I said, I'm serious. Go back to your office and count the number of pens and the number of pencils in your desk and come back and, and have that number. And they came back and we went around a room. I said, okay, because... Those resources in your desk are part of the only resources we have in this company. And we have to make the best use of whatever resources we have. And that's why I scale, I scaled down house shows. That's why I went to Disney MGM studios because the economies of scale from a production perspective made that a very attractive financial production decision. It wasn't, a, it was not an attractive decision for a lot of other reasons, we knew that the audience we were going to get there was going to be a bunch of tourists who had no idea what the storylines were. Even if there were storylines, we weren't able to produce them like that because of just gang shooting the way we did. It's like shooting a game show. You shoot 10 of them in a day. There's no storylines. You just get through all the matches. And then on another day, you do all the, you know, the, the, the backstage stuff and you do all the opens and the closes that the audience never sees. So all they see is a bunch of wrestling matches. We knew that that wasn't ideal, but the economies of scale that that opportunity provided to us mandated it. So when people talk about AT Americ, what they're forgetting was it took me a couple of years to get to the point where somebody said, wow, this, this idiot knows what he's doing. <laughs> but let's, instead of giving him a $25 million budget, let's give him a $30 million budget and see if he hangs himself. Wow. He took 30 and gosh, Holy smokes, we made a profit for the first time in history in 1995. Now he wants a little bit more money. Let's see if he hangs himself with that. So it was an evolutionary kind of process in terms of growing that budget. It wasn't like I got Ted Turner's personal credit card to do it. I love that, the, you know, the real side of things and how, you know, you had it built up that credibility with Ted and, and, you know, get the budget where you wanted to because, you know, it kind of annoys me as like a big WCW fan, the, all the false narratives that are out there. And obviously, you know, you take, you took some money, you invested in some more pay-per-views, you invested into the production value. 
you, know, you turn nitro into this huge phenomenon. So it's great to not only see you know your side of the story, but it's great to when you finally get the WWE, they, you're able to write a book about it or even most recently you have a dvd about it so it's almost like yeah they play up the false narratives but they give you a little bit of oh we'll give them a book and a dvd were you happy to get that dvd and to be able to write that book or is it almost like eh, you know it's like okay i guess i'll take it no 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 no. i was excited to write the book you know how many people you know how many people ever get a chance to do something like that and have a platform like the wwe to market it you know to, to you know i was like i don't know what the new york times bestseller was i think there's a top 10 and there's like two honorable mentions and i was like the last honorable mention so i officially made the list yeah but <laughs> how many how many people ever get a chance to do that so of course I was grateful for that and still am to this day. I still have people coming up to me with books they want me to autograph. How many people get a chance to do that? You know, one out of a million, one out of 10 million. I don't know. Um, the DVD was really important to me because as now as I've gotten older and again, it's not about telling my side of the story. It's, you know, I've told my side of the story. It's been told for me. It's been told by other people incorrectly. It doesn't matter to me anymore, but what matters to me now at this stage in my life is that there's going to be a document or documentation that, you know, my family is going to have, you know, great grandchildren that I'll never get a chance to meet if they are ever interested, are going to go, God, what was it that my great granddad granddad did again? I heard a rumor, but I can't remember. And now it's there. I mean, who wouldn't be grateful for that? Um, but in terms of feeling vindicated or finally getting to tell my side of the story, that's not really the motivation at all. It is a great documentary. Obviously, unbelievable book. The documentary is really cool, and I like the way they did it. They kind of went to your home, and they, they shot it in different ways. But with them kind of you know talking about vindication or credit or whatever do you think that a hall of fame nod is in your future or, is, or you really don't care about getting into the hall of fame i, I it would be it would be inappropriate to say i don't care but i don't look i think about it when people like you ask me this time of year because that happens every year right so for me to say i don't think about it would be a lie but I have mixed emotions about it, to be quite honest. Um, it would be disingenuous for me to say that it wouldn't make me feel good because who, who doesn't want to be acknowledged by their peers? I mean, who doesn't? Everybody does, right? And that would be nice. However, there is a however, and it's a real one for me. To me... And this is my own just personal taste. It's like I like broccoli, maybe you don't. So there's no right or wrong. This is just my taste, my, my opinion. To me, the Hall of Fame should be about wrestlers. And the guys who learned, and gals, who learned to craft their characters and tell their story inside of a wrestling ring. And who learned that craft and learned how to tell that story and build those characters over years and years and years of dedication and travel and challenges and the things that people and you know performers have to go through, you know people have no idea, and, and I guess some do because wrestling fans now you know everybody knows so much about everything that goes on in the wrestling business, but in, until you realize. You, you look at a guy like 
pick one, you know, pick any one of them that are stars that were working for 50 bucks a night that, you know, traveled in their cars six or seven days a week that are away from their families, weren't able to maintain relationships, became estranged from their families, sometimes their children and their wives went through all of the challenges and sometimes became victims of the, the natural occurrences of things that happen on the road when you live on the road, you know, 250 or 300 days a year. And by the way, I don't care if you're an NBA player, if you're a rock and roll star, if you're a country music star, if you're a live performer and you're on the road 250 days a year, the odds are really good that shit's going to happen that's bad. It's just, it's what it is. And when I look at the Hall of Fame and I look at some of the names in that Hall of Fame, you know, the Ric Flair's of the world, the Hulk Hogan's of the world, you know, everybody that's, you know, the, the Macho Man Randy Savage's of the world, you know, Shawn Michaels, guys like that. Do I want to be in that same room with them? I'm going to kind of feel out of place. So from that perspective, I don't know. Now, I, I've said this before. If they ever decide to have an executive division <laughs> separate and apart from the wrestler division, yeah, hell yeah, there should be a statue of me there. <laughs> but but to be in the same Hall of Fame with some of those guys and gals who just went through it all in a way that I never did. I know I contributed a lot to the industry. I know that. But not like that. <laughs> Sorry, hmm. not like that definitely a uh, statue if they did the executive wing they got to give you a statue that's uh, that's for damn sure yeah the smart, the, the, the smart ass hall of fame absolutely <laughs> big old bronze statue right next to andre the giant <laughs> but if you think about you know kind of in, in the mid 90s kind of you know when you were on top a lot of guys did end up kind of piggybacking off you and making a name for themselves, whether it be Stone Cold Steve Austin or Mick Foley or like you mentioned before, Paul Heyman or even to an extent uh, uh, Jim Ross, who kind of pretended he was, not pretended but let's just say he said he was fired from WWE and he possibly quit so you I mean do you ever No, he didn't possibly quit, he didn't possibly quit and Jim Ross <laughs> is a good friend of mine, there's no possibility in that equation, the only possibility <laughs> is that that was another narrative that was created, to, yes. because Jim like everybody else, was trying to get himself over yeah. and I don't mean just necessarily as a wrestling character, but what is Jim, first of all, Jim Ross was under contract to WCW, he asked to be let out of his contract, and at the time that Jim left asked to be let out of his contract I didn't have the authority to do it so even if I wanted to fire Jim Ross, I couldn't have done so. I couldn't even have agreed to let him out of his contract. That was before I had the authority to do that kind of thing. That was a Bill Shaw decision at that time. I was fresh. I was brand new in the gig. I didn't have all the authority that I ended up with at the end. So that 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 story that was put out there and probably told and retold for a number of years, by the way, wasn't really true. Now, you know, when you use the term, you know, Steve Austin and McFoley piggybacked off me, I, that, that kind of, I got to stand up there a little bit. They didn't piggyback off me at all. They used me. Mm. They, they used my character because I was so hated. You know, the WWE fans hated me because I was kicking WWE's ass. You know, WWE wrestlers hated me because I was, in their minds, putting their jobs in jeopardy because I was kicking their ass. 
I mean, and, and I was a smarmy, you know, instantly dislikable character. I worked really hard to be a dislikable character. That was my job. That's, and it worked for crying out loud. So of course I was an easy person to, to dislike both as a character and because the real guy, Eric Bischoff was actually turning things upside down. So it, you know, it's natural a guy like Steve Austin, you know, and if you listen to Steve's podcast, you know, when I did it a couple of years ago, we go into that story and you hear it, you know, from Steve's perspective now, you know, 20 years later, everybody's got a little different perspective on things and we, we get to be a little more honest about things. But, you know, back at that day, of course, what's Steve Austin going to do, you know, go back to WWE and say, God, I think that Eric Bischoff is a great guy. I think Vince, you're underestimating Eric. You know, he may be kicking your ass, um, and he may be almost putting you into bankruptcy. But you know, he's really kind of a smart guy. Nobody's going to say that. They they wouldn't have lasted three minutes. So it it just comes with the territory. It's just funny, like as a fan, kind of looking into it. It's like, wow, like do other fans realize what, what these guys are doing? Like, it always just was a question mark for me. It's like, wow, you know, McFoley wearing the Bischoff T-shirt. Stuff like that. It's just like, wow, I wonder if every, everybody does that. it. Everybody does it. Watch politics today. You know, watch, just watch the news. You know, last night on the news, everybody in the media, or yesterday morning, everybody, in the, because I'm a news junkie, right? I'm a politics junkie. Everybody hmm. in the media, especially on the liberal side of the equation, up in arms at Donald Trump or excuse me, Jeff Sessions asked for the resignation of all the um, attorneys that the Obama administration had, you know, had, had uh, made a part of the, the, the um, federal judge or federal court system. Everybody's pissed off, right? Well, except for Bill Clinton did the same thing. He fired 93 U.S. attorneys almost immediately after becoming elected president. Everybody does it. But then everybody uses that to get over, right? So now, and I'm not necessarily taking any side of the equation politically on this, but if you look at the, you know, I hate to say hypocrisy is in the context of what we're talking about with regard to guys using me to get over, but it's kind of hypocrisy. Just like it was hypocrisy for Vince McMahon to cry bloody murder because big bad billionaire Ted was snatching up all his talent. Well, guess what Vince McMahon did when he hired Gene Oakland, he hired Hulk Hogan, and he hired Kurt Hennig, and he hired Jesse the Body Ventura away from Vern Gagne. He offered him more money and a better opportunity. Guess what I did? I offered guys more money and a better opportunity. It's hypocrisy, but people do it. They do it in life. They do it in politics. They justify their actions by doing things that really, if you boil all of the meat off the bone, it's pretty silly. And I was even thinking when I was watching that XFL documentary, Vince was saying, oh, I can't believe the NFL stole this and didn't give the XFL credit. I'm going, oh, my God, how many things did you steal from WCW that you didn't give Bischoff any credit for? Exactly. But, you know, and that's why I, and now when I, you ask me a couple times, does that make you angry? Do you get mad? Hell no. I just, I look at it and I laugh. Just like I laugh at Nancy Pelosi when I hear some of the ridiculous crap come out of her pie hole. <laughs> so true. And, you know, we were talking about Vince and stuff. What was it like working for Vince? Obviously, that had to be completely different for, for you. Was it weird? 
you know, being the, the guy that almost put him out of business and then you go to work for him. I'm sure you've answered that question before, but was it a weird thing to have to have to do work for him? Not at all, because I didn't have to. I chose to. And it, you know, I, I had, and I've told the story a million times. I'm not going to tell it in detail here, but, right. you know, I, I had been out of wrestling for a while. I mentally, emotionally kind of separated myself from it. I was pursuing other things. I was happy in my life and there were great things going on. And I'd closed the book. You know, I'd read the last sentence in the last chapter and I closed the book and I put it on the shelf and kind of forgot about it. And I got a phone call from Vince McMahon one day and he, it was just such a great conversation and he made me feel so good. He was very elegant uh, and, and gracious in, in the opening moments of our conversation. And within about, I don't know, three to five minutes I'd made up my mind in that phone call that I was going to take advantage of the opportunity that Vince was providing me to take that book back off of the shelf, open it up to the last chapter and write the final sentence myself instead of having it written for me. And I knew that if I could, all I had to do is be a performer and all I had to do is be a performer on the biggest stage in the sports entertainment universe, I knew how that last sentence was going to be written and I was completely in control of it. So I was pretty cool with the idea. And then of course you, know, you become the general manager of raw and you have that shocking embrace with Vince and you made that return, you know, to the, to the business, but the debut for raw. And was it weird, you know, with that embrace, knowing that everyone was going to be completely floored by it? It wasn't weird. It was exciting as hell. You know, we went to great lengths to keep my uh, appearance a secret. You know, I, I literally flew myself in on my own credit card because I didn't want anybody in WWE to see my name coming across in the travel department and then somehow leaking out mistakenly or anything like that. Um, nobody knew. Small handful of people, obviously. Small handful of people knew, but they were able to keep it quiet internally. Um, so I knew. You know, when I got on a plane, when I left Phoenix to fly to uh, New York to to do that show, you know, on my way to the airport in Phoenix, I absolutely knew that it was going to be a great moment. Um, unlike the NWO thing, uh, where I didn't know, I felt kind of good about it, but I knew when I left um, Phoenix to go be on that first episode of Raw because I knew what the story was going to be and I kind of had an idea how they were going to do it. Um, I knew it was just going to, I knew it was going to be successful. So cool and such a crazy dynamic. And then you cut that awesome promo. You're talking about the 84 straight weeks. And it was really cool just to kind of like, wow, you know, it's it's like, wow, Bischoff's side of the story. But yet it's like a new twist to it. It's it's, it's a new beginning. And, you know, and, and it's definitely, like you said, it was a new chapter. You're able to write that kind of different chapter to end the book. But kind of bring a little bit of that old chapter back when, Steve Austin is kind of bringing up the past and you're feuding with him, but was that kind of a cool, almost a full circle kind of experience where you saw Steve then, then you get to work with him at that point when he was on top. Yeah. I mean, and there were, you know, there were several of those types of moments, you know, and that's another thing that the WWE provided me it was not only a chance to kind of close, um, some open-ended issues, if you will, um, like that, but, yeah, that was that was imp that that was very cool because Steve and I, you know, I was, you know, 
when Bruce Pritchard came to me, and Bruce is still a very good friend of mine. When Bruce Pritchard came to me, because it was kind of he was he was my he was my producer. He was the guy that got saddled with the burden of having to deal with Eric Bischoff right from the very beginning, probably because nobody else wanted to, and Bruce didn't care. But we we instantly became good friends because we respected each other, and Bruce is a great producer and really knows his stuff. And Bruce came to me and goes, uh, Eric, uh, creative's got this idea and uh, kind of wondering, you know, bad blood between you and Austin. And just, I know a lot of things have been said, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, how do you feel about maybe having a match with him? And I'm, I'm chuckling now as I say this to you because it sounds even funnier as I say it 20 some odd years later. But I was like, are you kidding? That'd be awesome because the audience is going to buy it. We'd spent years laying that story out. Steve Austin spent years, to your point earlier on, about ah, some bitch fired me by FedEx. You know, all that kind of <laughs> kind of stuff was just a great foundation for a great story. And now I get to get in the ring with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Are you kidding me? How do you think I feel about that? Number one, I know it's going to be a slam dunk, out of the park, bases loaded, home run. And number two it'll be great to kind of come full circle and, and have that moment with Steve. And the first time I'd laid eyes on Steve since, you know, probably weeks before I actually did fire him back in whenever he was 94, 93, 94. I don't even remember. Uh, Steve met me on location. We were shooting some vignettes. I was with Bruce and a camera crew. We were shooting some vignettes and Steve came out and he pulled me off to the side and we drank a beer together and he said, you know, I don't remember the words verbatim. And if I did, I probably wouldn't share them out of respect for Steve. But it was basically, hey, you know, what happened happened. And all of our lives are better because of it. I would have never become Stone Cold Steve Austin if it wouldn't have been everything that I had gone through. You wouldn't be where you are if it wasn't for everything you gone through. So let's crack a beer and have some fun. This is essentially what that conversation was like. And from that point on, it was a blast. And by the way, I'm close friends with Steve Austin to this day. Every time I go to L, not every time, but I often go to LA and I'll either bump into him because we kind of hang out in the same general area or I'll give him a call and we'll sit down, crack a beer and catch up, you know, a couple times a year. So I'm grateful for that opportunity as well. Awesome. And as I start to uh, wrap it up here, I literally could probably go on forever and that would there because, you know, I, I well, do yeah, and not only that, brother, you'll kill my podcast business because I'm covering more <laughs> ground with you than I do on my own show. <laughs> well, you know, we have like one sheet and stuff, and yours is the longest I've ever done. It's like a three sheet. And then uh, I have every Nitro on tape. I mean, I used to tape them religiously. So I'm a huge Eric Bischoff fan. So just one final question from me, and then I'll, I will let you go. And then obviously, you know, we'll just do the, the final plug for 422, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The NWO is coming back together with Eric Bischoff, Sean Waltman, Hall and Nash. We'll all be there signing autographs. But one final question for the man easy is what is the legacy? of Eric Bischoff that he left on the professional wrestling business. I'd, li I'd like to think that people will recognize at least the attempt to innovate the business, you know, whether it's the cruiserweights or whether it's the NWO or the reality based storytelling that I kind of introduced into the industry, you know, my part in, and it's a small part really, but my part in the Monday night wars, um, and what that meant to the industry as a whole. Uh, I'd like to think that that was my legacy. And I think for some people it will be, and for some people it won't, but I, you know, I tried taking legacy to the bank the other day and 
in using it, you know, to deposit <laughs> into my checking account. Hmm. And the teller just looked at me and shook her head. So, you know, while it's nice, the, the idea of a legacy is nice, it doesn't put any money in the bank. So I don't worry about it too much. Well, this has been awesome. It's a total honor for me to finally get you on. It's been great. But where can the fans find Eric Bischoff, whether it be Twitter, whether it be the podcast, or, you know, anything else you got going on? Uh, well, really, you know, I, I don't, I do Twitter, you know, you can find me on Twitter at E Bischoff. Um, and of course the podcast Bischoff on wrestling run iTunes, uh, podcast arena. You can find us each and every Wednesday evening. We drop pretty regularly and that's doing really well. So yeah, check us out. Love to, uh, share some more thoughts, share some more time with you. Awesome. And I can finally get to say this after 20 plus year on april 22nd we're taking over so thank you very much uh, mr bischoff it's been a blast all right man we'll see you on the 22nd yes thank you have a good one thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling what the world is downloading